You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. family and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, my dear Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. Uh, Today, Bishop Sheen will be ending our catechism series, and he'll be uh, talking about the world, our souls, and things. And uh, before that, he will give a reflection from his television series, uh, simply entitled, What Did I Do to Deserve This? And I think uh, many of us can uh, ask ourselves that same question sometimes, Uh, but we will enjoy his humor. But let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now entitled, What Did I Do to Deserve This? Friends. As you may have guessed from the title, it has something to do with pain and suffering. Now that begins at a very early age, and those who are 40 or over will remember one of the earliest pains or sufferings that you ever had. It came from spanking. I should say to the younger generation that that was a phenomenon quite common some decades ago. It was a way of developing character. It was a pat on the back on the gluteus maximus, (laughs) and it developed character provided it was given uh, hard enough, often enough, and low enough. Uh, Parents, whenever they used to spank children, would always say, this hurts me more than it does you. And the children would always say, but not in the same place. (laughs) And then there came later on other kinds of suffering, such as embarrassment. Humiliations. I remember one I had. I was preaching in a small country church, and there was a child baby down in the third or fourth pew with the mother, and the baby started screaming, and the mother got up and walked out of church. And I said to the mother as she was going out, I said, Madam, it's all right. So the child isn't bothering me. She said, I know, but you're bothering the child. <laughs> And then there comes the sufferings that are incidental to old age and just health in general 
I remember once being in the doctor's office. There must have been about 30 or 40 of us waiting in this office. We had read through all of the old magazines. I can remember one man opening a magazine and saying, I see that Foch has been appointed Generalissimo of the Allied Forces. <laughs> but after waiting and waiting, it seemed interminably, one old man got up and walked out saying, I think I'll go home and die a natural death. <laughs> but we are concerned with the more serious side of it. And first the problem of suffering, and then how it relates to us personally. First the problem. Now that camera is getting very close to me, so I'm going to walk back a bit. <laughs> First, the problem of suffering. It is related in some way to human freedom. God could have made another world than this. He could have made a world in which we would all be good with the same necessity the sun rises in the east or sets in the west. We could have been good just as ice is cold and fire is hot. But God chose to make a moral universe. One that would be a veil of character making. But how could he make a moral universe? He had to make us free. But if he made us free to be virtuous, he made it possible to be vicious. A man can be a patriot only in a country in which it is possible to be a coward. One can be a saint only in a church in which it is possible to be a devil. One can be a learned man in this world only on condition that it is possible also to be ignorant. No crowns of merit rest suspended over those who do not fight. There's always some great issue at stake. And therefore, in making this world, God took a risk when he made us free. He took the risk of evil. Whenever freedom is given to anyone, there's a risk. When parents allow their children to go out into the world to live their own life, that's a risk. God took a risk at creation and then assumed the full responsibilities of that risk later on, on the cross. But the only condition and this moral universe of doing away with evil would be to completely do away with human freedom. And if we do not want any dictators upon the face of the earth, certainly we do not want a dictator in heaven. But that's not answering the problem, is it? There really is no adequate answer. There have been all kinds of answers suggested. I suppose there's no one in this world who is a mere human who ever suffered as much as poor Job. Job lost all of his sons and daughters and he lost his herds of cattle and sheep and camel. And his wife turned against him. She said, curse God and die. And then poor Job was afflicted with some disease. He was not allowed to stay in the house. 
we went out and sat on a dung heap. And some visitors came to visit Job. Some consolers and comforters. And they tried to explain evil to him. Some of them said, Job, the reason you're suffering this way is because of the life you've led. You've been bad. And that's why you suffer. And Job was not satisfied with their accusations. He began to be skeptical. He asked questions. Questions of God. Why was I born? What did I do to deserve this? Why should I suffer? Why did I ever see the light of day? Why was I ever nestled at my mother's breast? These were the questions that he asked. Now, if a Broadway dramatist were doing this story of Job, he would have done one of two things. He would have made God walk on the stage at that particular moment and answer all of the questions of Job. That would have been very satisfying. Or he might have begun mixing up his own questions and his own doubts with Job's doubts and in the end there would have been confusion worse confounded and no one would have known what the play was about. Now God does speak to Job. How impatient we are. What would he say? What answer would he give to those questions? Here's the remarkable thing about what God did. He did not answer the questions of Job. He asked Job more questions. He was practically saying to Job, Job, you're boast that you're skeptical. You're not skeptical enough. So he says, gird thyself up like a man, and I will ask thee questions. And he asked questions like this. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Upon what are its bases grounded? Who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? Where is the hiding place of darkness? Out of whose womb came the ice? The frost from heaven, who hath gendered it? Who shut up the sea with doors when it did burst forth as issuing out of a womb? Canst thou stop turning about the Arcturus? Canst thou make the evening star to rise upon the children of men? And canst thou send forth thy voice 
And will thunders and lightnings go forth and come back to thee and say, Here we are. And when God had finished asking Job questions, Job understood that the questions of God were more satisfying than the answers of men. Job eventually got everything back and was blessed a hundredfold. But Job saw in those questions, what is my mind compared to the infinite? His mind, the human mind, is just like a mouse that, for example, is nibbling away at the hammers of the piano. That mouse in the piano can never understand why anyone, for example, should ever sit down with the keys and play. A harmony to disturb his eating of the keys. And so our mind is that far away from God's mind. And we could not understand all of the answers. Here on this earth we're very much like well, the boys that work on the Persian rugs. In Persia, they will have boys in various levels of scaffolds. And the master rug maker is in front with the pattern before him. These boys work from behind, and they will draw the threads at different levels. Sometimes they may draw the wrong kind of thread. The rug master may order them to take it out, or he may just skillfully weave that wrong thread into a slightly different pattern so that nothing is ever lost. And it's only when the whole tapestry is completed that one sees the pattern. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I may but choose the colors he worketh skillfully. Full oft he chooses sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. But what about suffering personally? Well, two reflections. First, we are never to think that any catastrophe, crisis, sickness, illness, or any disaster is due necessarily to personal sin. Indeed, all suffering in the world is due to sin in general. But it would be quite wrong to say that because a disaster happens to a particular person that it was on account of sins that he had committed. Remember one day a blind man was brought to our Lord and the disciples said to our Lord, Who sinned, this boy or his parents, that he should have been born blind? Our Lord said, Neither. Neither. Then he went on to hint that God was working out a plan in him 
in a blind boy which they would not understand. There were two catastrophes during the life of our blessed Lord which excited the attention of everyone. One happened in Galilee and the other in Jerusalem. In Galilee there was a, a rebel leader who was anxious to rid the country of the Roman occupational army. His name was Judas, not the Iscariot. And so he led an insurrection against the army and Pilate put the insurrection down at a time when many of these Galileans were offering sacrifice. And so that their blood, the blood of the Galileans, was mingled with the blood of their sacrifice. And our blessed Lord said, Think ye that these were worse sinners than anyone else in Galilee? I say to you, it is not so. And then the other accident was in Jerusalem. There was a tower being built. It was called the Tower of Siloe. Some say that that was the occasion of the enmity between Pilate and Herod. Herod supplying very poor architects. But in any case, the tower fell. Eighteen men were killed. Our blessed Lord said, Think ye that there was a heavier account against these eighteen who were killed than all other men in Jerusalem? I say to you, it is not so. But then he went on to say, Repent. In other words, whenever you hear of a catastrophe, do not think because there's a fall of a plane or an automobile accident or anything of this kind that it is due to personal sin. But let it be a reminder. Repent. Somewhere there is sin in the world. Well, when it happens, what can be done? That brings up the question of how to use it. The greatest tragedy of the world is not pain, it's wasted pain. It's not what people suffer, but how they react to it. One of the best ways to use it is to use it in love, in reparation for others. We happen to live in an organic universe. We're bound up with everyone else. The good that we do helps others. The evil that we do hurts others. Now, in the face of innocence, or rather of guilt, does not one want to take it on oneself in some particular way? If, for example, you are the only person, say, in a village that had eyes, would you not be a staff to the blind? If you were a soldier, and the only soldier that was healthy and whole on the battlefield, would you not care for the wounded? Do we not have blood banks in which the poor, weak, anemic members of human society can go to share the health of others, to have that blood poured into them, to make up for their poor 
bankrupt physical condition. If our face is burnt, do not doctors grab skin from another part of the body to restore our pristine elegance? Now, if it is possible to graft skin, do you not think it's also possible to graft pain? If it's possible to graft, to transfuse blood, is it not also possible to transfuse sacrifice? So that we're helping other peoples in the world, doing it out of love. Is there a, a mother in the world that would not take on the pain of her own child? Is there a lover that would not take on the pain of the beloved? And that's precisely what divine innocence did. Came down to this earth in order to take pain upon himself. I used to know in London a man who had been an alcoholic for about 30 years. One day on a park bench he said to himself, why can't I be a saint just as well as being an alcoholic? Incidentally, that suggests that alcoholics are not so compulsive that free will is completely destroyed. Never believe that. Never. And he said to me, I used to live in a dive when I was an alcoholic with a lot of degenerates and other alcoholics. And now that I'm out of it, I still live among them. And he said, I kneel alongside of my cot. Sometimes I kneel there all night long. And he said, I see these poor men. They are just as I was some years ago. And I take on their pain as my own. Did you know that there are people in Russia called the Erodovies, the born fools? The Erodovies that will take upon themselves, if possible, the lashes of a communist cruel master in order that someone else might be spared. They're called the Erodovies because they want the iniquity and the evil of others to be visited upon them. Who knows but what some of the Justice of God is withheld from this world simply because there are some souls that are praying and suffering for us that do not allow all of their agonies to go to waste. So it's not true that innocence should not suffer. As a matter of fact, real love seeks to take on the agony of another. Love is vulnerable. And the more we love, the more vulnerable we become. The more the area of our heart is open to all of the iniquities of the world. And innocence will clasp all of that to itself. And if the innocent will take on 
and the physical pains of others, should there not also be a taking on of the moral evil of others in order to make reparation for them? And that is precisely what happened. When looking down to this earth, divine love made itself vulnerable, took upon himself a human nature, likened to us in all things. And once he came down and took upon himself pain and suffering, men never again could say, What did I do to deserve this? What did he do to deserve this? Indeed, that cross asked all the questions of the world. They were all compacted in it. But three days later, there was an end to it all. And just as you, when you witness a show in a theater, will not walk out in the first act, because a hero is killed. You give the dramatist credit for a plot. You know it's the last act that crowns the play. And so too, it was the cross indeed that asked the questions, but it is the resurrection that answers them. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith. Peace be to you. We have now come to the end of our conversations together. I'm sure that you've noticed in the course of all of these records how many imperfections there were. There may have been some words repeated. I possibly may have mispronounced some words. Recordings themselves might have been inadequate. All this is due to the fact that we have not read. We have spoken to you. 
out of our own heart. I'm not satisfied with these recordings as they are, and I am sure that you are not. But I wish you would regard them just as a kind of, maybe a piece of carbon. I was about to say a diamond. Rather as a piece of carbon. And perhaps if the light and fire of your own charity shines through the carbon, well, then they might turn into a diamond. So in conclusion about these, everything that is poor in them is mine. Everything that is good in them is the Lord. If you have followed all of these, I perhaps have led you step by step, very much like our blessed Lord led the woman at the well. You will remember that when he met her at noon, there were a number of steps that she took in coming to know our blessed Lord. First of all, she was rather discourteous to him. And she said to him, How is it that thou, a Jew, speak to me a Samaritan? The Jews and the Samaritans did not speak. That was all our Lord was to her at first, just a member of another nationality with whom the Samaritans had no relations. And then as she talked a little longer to him, she perceived that he was a gentleman. Or she called him sir. And then, in a few minutes more, when he began to put his finger onto her soul and to stir it into a kind of uneasiness, in particularly, tell her that she had five husbands. And the man with whom she was living was not her husband. Then she said that he was a prophet. This was a step further in getting to know him. And then she went a little bit further. When she said, I know that the Messiah is coming. And our blessed Lord said to her, and think of how surprising it must have been to her. when he said, it is I, the Christ, the Messiah, who speaks to you. Well, she was so excited when she heard that, she left her water pot at the well and ran back into the village. A short time later, she comes out with a number of village people. And then, then comes the last name. He is called the Savior of the world. So perhaps I may have led you to some understanding of our blessed Lord. Namely, first of all, he was just a Jew. Then the great gentleman. And then after that, the prophet, then Christ the Messiah, and finally 
the Savior of the world. That is really what he is, the Savior of the world. And we never know him until we know that truth. He's Savior because he died on the cross for us. Whenever there's silence round about me, by day or night, I am startled by a cry. It came down from the cross the first time I heard it. And I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. And I said, I will take you down. And I tried to take the nails out of his feet. But, he said, let them be. For I cannot be taken down until every man, woman, and child come together to take me down. But I said, what can I do? I cannot bear your cry. And he said, go into the world and tell everyone that you meet, there is a man on the cross. That's what I told you. In all of these hours that we have spent together, there was the man on the cross. Now through that vision, may I bid you first to look at the world and then to look at your own soul. First of all, at the world. We are part of it. It is our world. We are responsible for it. And on the last day, we are going to be judged in the context of that world. Our blessed Lord said that he would say to us, I was hungry. And you gave me to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me to drink. I was naked. And you clothed me. And we who are saved, the elect, will ask when. When did we see you hungry and give you to eat, thirsty and give you to drink, and naked did we clothe thee? And he will say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me.
In other words, there is the Christus incognitus, the unknown Christ in the world, in the poor, in the slums, in the favelas. This is our world. We cannot know Christ apart from them. I know there are many who are predicting disaster for the world, particularly in this atomic age of ours. Even in the close of the last century, there were some who were dimly envisaging this disaster. One day, two great French scientists with the name of Claude Bernard and Emile Boutroux paid a visit to a French publisher whose name was Jean Coeur. And these scientists said to Jean Coeur, We have just begun to lisp the alphabet of destruction. And in the next century, we will have completed the alphabet. And Jean Coeur said, And when that day comes, I think that God will come down from heaven like a night watchman rattling his keys. And he will say, Gentlemen, it's closing time. And we will have to start all over again. This is the pessimistic side of the world. Then there are those who think of communism and its dangers, which indeed are very real. But we are never to be without hope. Remember that great Russian novelist and writer of the 19th century who was a kind of a prophet. He saw communism coming in Russia long before it ever existed, long before anyone ever thought of it. But he also saw it ending in Russia, too. He foresaw a day when the devils would come into Russia and possess it, body and soul. And then he calls for the gospel. And he picks up that particular passage in the gospel where our blessed Lord drives the devil out of a young man into the swine. They are drowned in the sea. Dostoevsky says, that's my Russia, my beloved Russia. It will one day be filled with devils, but the devils will be driven out of Russia, and they will be pushed back and back and back into the sea. And there they will be drowned. And Russia will sit at the feet of Christ and learn his gospel. 
Yes, there's hope. Hope even in the midst of all of our trials and disasters and darkness. For we are never without God. If we but return to him, all can be changed. They can be changed as noise describes the home of Swinburne. Remember the English poet Swinburne, who wrote, Glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of all. Alfred Noyes, the English essayist before his conversion, visited Swinburne at his paternal home in Bonchurch, England. Swinburne took him into the library, where Swinburne said he wrote his atheistic poetry. They began talking about Christianity. Noise said he literally spat out his words. Years passed. Swinburne went to meet the God whom he denied it was his judge. Noise later on was received into the church. Noise went back again to Bond Church, walked up that same long line of lilac trees. Before him, he saw children clothed in white. As they walked, they dropped flowers. He followed them into the home. It was now a convent. Confident of the sacred heart. Today, it was the feast of Corpus Christi, feast of the body of Christ. Noise goes into the chapel. The chapel was the old library. And at the moment of benediction, when noise raised his eyes, to look at our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, his eyes also fell upon that great window which he had seen and his first visit. And immediately above the monstrance, on that window, were the initials of the paternal Swinburne, unchanged, I-H-S, which is the Hebrew name, for Jesus. And thus, all things can be changed by the power of God so sweetly and so gently. That's for the world. Now, as regards your soul, May I speak of some intimacies of love? There are three degrees of intimacy. The first one is speech. We would never know that anyone loved us unless he told us so. A word is the summation of a character. 
all that a person is and all that he will be. We need only hear a person speak and we can say he's a kind man or he is a cruel man or he is an educated man. So the first intimacy of all love is we must be told, we must hear it. And God has spoken. And I told you about that in Revelation. Open up your scripture. You hear the word of God. But is that all? It is not enough just merely to hear the voice of the beloved. We want to see the beloved. We want to see words born on human lips. We want to see the earnestness of a visage and the flash of an eye. And so if God is really to love us, he must not only be heard, he must be seen. And one day, an angel came out from the great white throne of light and came to a humble virgin kneeling in prayer and said, Hail, full of grace. These were not words. They were the word. The word became flesh, wealth amongst us. And so God was seen in the form of man. And you see him too with the eyes of faith. You will see him in the blessed sacrament with the eyes of faith. You will see him in his church, the continuation of his incarnation. You will see him also in the poor. That's not all. Oh, yes, I might say that the speech and the vision of God is very much like the relationship between radio and television. The Old Testament is radio. We hear the voice of God, but do not see him. And the New Testament is television, where we not only hear but see God. But is there not yet another intimacy of love, more sacred and profound still? There is one so delicate that the greatest insult anyone can show us who knows us not is to make use of it. And that is the intimacy of touch. And so, if our blessed Lord is to exhaust all of the intimacies of love, he must touch and be touched. was touched by Thomas, by the Syro-Phoenician woman, and he touched the leopard and the sick. And as for you, if the gift of faith comes to you, you will have this gift of touch, which is reserved only for the intimate. the ecstasy of Holy Communion.
For just as in marriage the peak of love is the unity of two in one flesh, so in the Eucharist the peak of love is the unity of two in one spirit. And it is my fervent prayer to God that there may come to each and every one of you who listen to me this third and most beautiful of all intimacies. That is your soul as regards the sacraments. Now let me say something about things, the world in which you live. Every single action of yours, your daily work, it makes no difference what you do. Sweeping the street, teaching classes. Everything could be made a prayer. Every action is a kind of a blank check. A blank check that has value only if the name of our Lord is signed to it. That is why St. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. And so, the tiny little actions of your daily life, as a mother, as a father, as a worker, as a teacher, as a nurse, as a secretary, all of these can be divinized, sacramentalized, provided you bring to them the divine intention. This is prayer, prayer of action. Down in the gutter of a city street, was a drop of water, soil, dirty, and stagnant. And way up in the heavens, a gentle sunbeam saw it leap from out the azure sky down to the drop, kissed it, thrilled it through and through with new strange lives and hopes, and lifted it up higher and higher and higher beyond the clouds, and one day left it as a flake of immaculate snow on a mountain top. And so your humdrum routine workaday world can be transmuted and changed just on condition that you do it all for the name of Christ. It is not important what you do in this world, it is how you do it. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. And why should he who plays the part of a king glory in his tinsel crown and tin sword and think that he's better than the one who plays the role of a peasant? When the curtain goes down, they're just actors. And when the curtain of our life goes down, we will not be asked what role we play. We will only be asked how well we play the role that was assigned to us. So it will not be hard to save your soul. But 
Let me tell you this. Being a Catholic will never prevent you from sinning. But I can tell you one thing. It will take all the fun out of it. And the reason it will take all the fun out of it is because you once have loved. You know what love is. No one else. And that is why sin in the scripture is always called adultery. Because it's the false love. Oh yes, I know you will find people who will cut corners and will play loose and cheat. Commit adultery, avoid paying their taxes, ruin their neighbor's reputation and the like. And they apparently do not seem to have any bumps on their conscience. But they have no peace. No peace. So that if we are ready to love, we do have to have a cross. This is the cross of Christ. We cannot escape. We try to. I slipped his fingers. I escaped his feet. I ran and hid for him I feared to meet. One day I passed him fettered on a tree. He turned his head and looked and beckoned me. Neither by speed nor speech could he prevail. Each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run nor clasp me if he tried. But with his eye, he bade me reach his side. For pity's sake, said I, I'll set you free. Nay, take this cross and follow me. This yoke is easy, this burden light, not hard nor grievous if you wear it tight. And so did I follow him who could not move and un caught captive in the hands of love. Our time is up. I must take leave of you now. I have enjoyed being with you. I hope you have profited. Perhaps our hearts have grown a bit together. They do, in long conversations. But may I remind you that your heart, my heart, are not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. There is a small piece missing out of the side of every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a piece that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is 
when God made your heart. You found it so good, so lovable, that he kept a small sample of it in heaven and sent the rest of your heart into this world where you would try to be happy but where you could not be perfectly happy because you did not have a whole heart to love with. And so he has always reminded you that to be truly peaceful, to be really happy, to be really wholehearted, you must go back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. Your heart will be there in heaven and peace God. So will mine. I will see you in the heart of God. Bye now. And God love you. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.fultonsheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the Master Preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit fultonsheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.